Thank you for tuning in to the True Suspense podcast, completely free with no interruptions from advertising. If you enjoy what you hear, we would greatly appreciate it if you would follow or subscribe and rate and review our podcast. It helps new listeners find us. Please note that Season 3 includes a description of a serious shooting incident, so listener discretion is advised. Buckle up and get ready for True Suspense. Arthur Perlstein, and this podcast from the True Suspense Collection is Night Raids. Here is Episode 2, Lies, Drugs, and Guns. When we left off in Episode 1 on the night of Wednesday, September 24th, 2014, David and Teresa Hooks once again had uninvited visitors to their property in East Dublin, Georgia. This time, the intruders seemed emboldened and were moving in directly on the Hook's residence under cover of darkness. As David Hooks grabbed his shotgun, and before he'd put on a stitch of clothing, he and Teresa heard their back door being busted open. Here in Episode 2, we are winding the clock back a few hours to the afternoon of that same Wednesday to take a look at a series of events that appear to have set the stage for the second and more frightening night raid. Much of what you will hear was taken directly from court findings and court records. Late on Wednesday afternoon, Lawrence County Sergeant Ryan Brooks was still in bed resting up for a switch to night shift after a couple of days off. Sergeant Brooks received a personal phone call on his cell phone from a woman named Beverly Garrett. Brooks was a family friend of the Garretts and had known Rodney Garrett, the son of Beverly and her husband Monty, since childhood. As Sergeant Brooks would later put it, Quote, we went to school together, went to church together. My family knows all of his family, or a lot of his family, unquote. It turned out that Beverly had an unusual request of Ryan Brooks, in the sergeant's own words. Quote, she told me that Mr. Monty was having issues with his blood pressure and was hurting in his chest, and asked me if I would come over and help her. I asked her if she had called 911, and she said no, that she didn't know anybody else to call, that he wouldn't listen to nobody, and wouldn't go to the doctor, and asked me if I would just get over there. 
Sergeant Brooks had no idea how he could convince Monty Garrett to seek medical attention, but he sprang into action, again in his words. I get up and put on my uniform shirt and pants because I didn't know if I would have time to come back home to fully get ready. So I just threw my shirt and pants on and my boots and leave and go to their house, unquote. When Ryan Brooks arrived at the Garrett's house, he found Beverly standing in the backyard. Where's Mr. Monty? he asked. And Beverly told him that Monty Garrett was on the back porch. So the two of them then walked together up to the screened-in porch, and Sergeant Brooks asked him if he was okay, and Monty told him that he would be in just a few minutes. Still weighing how to prevail upon Monty to get to a doctor right away, Sergeant Brooks asked, Well, what you mean by that? Monty then quickly changed his tune, and it quickly became clear to the sergeant that the story about his blood pressure wasn't true, that it was just a ruse to get Brooks over to the Garrett house on a very different mission. Monty Garrett informed Sergeant Brooks that his son Rodney was scared and wanted to turn himself into someone he trusted, and the obvious choice for that someone was Sergeant Ryan Brooks. Monty then explained that Rodney Garrett was, quote, laying in the woods watching to make sure Sergeant Brooks was the only one coming. Sergeant Brooks knew that Rodney was a meth addict who frequently ran afoul of the law. Indeed, just three days earlier, Brooks had been investigating the theft of a green truck belonging to a man named Hippolito Mendoza. When suspicion about the stealing of Mr. Mendoza's truck fell on Rodney Garrett, Sergeant Brooks spoke to, among other people, Rodney's wife, who had told him that Rodney had been staying somewhere in the woods in a tent and that, quote, he wasn't the same as he used to be, and he didn't act the same, unquote. By the time Sergeant Brooks had arrived at the Garrett house on Wednesday to provide what he thought was assistance with Monty's health issue, a warrant had previously been sworn out by Lawrence County officers for Rodney Garrett's arrest in connection with the theft of Mr. Mendoza's truck. The green truck had been recovered by Lawrence County officers on September 21st, 2014, just a couple of days before. Details emerged that because he was concerned law enforcement was looking for him in connection with the theft, Rodney had gone to live in the nearby woods with a man named Chris Willis, in a tent for a few days. Chris Willis was a special kind of friend, if you could call him that, to Rodney. Sergeant Brooks and other Lawrence County officers were aware that Chris Willis regularly supplied Rodney with methamphetamine 
and had previously attempted to fence stolen goods on Rodney's behalf. Unbeknownst to Rodney, it was Chris who had informed police where Hippolito Mendoza's stolen green truck could be found. When Monty Garrett told Ryan Brooks in their back porch conversation that his son wanted to turn himself in, the sergeant looked around and saw an individual walking from the woods. As he started down the driveway to confront this individual, Sergeant Brooks recognized him as Rodney Garrett. When they met, they shook hands and then embraced in a hug. It was easy to see that Rodney was strung out. It's worth noting key things that Sergeant Brooks already knew about Rodney's situation as he encountered him that Wednesday afternoon. The sergeant knew that Rodney Garrett was, number one, addicted to methamphetamine, two, was presently under the influence of methamphetamine and had not slept in seven to ten days, three, had a proclivity to deceive law enforcement as well as friends and family, and four, had in fact lied to Sergeant Brooks himself less than three days before regarding his involvement in suspected criminal activity, including the theft of the green truck. Rodney would later confirm that by the time Brooks had arrived on that Wednesday, he had been awake, quote, for almost two weeks straight, unquote, and that when he would, quote, stay up for seven to ten days in a row, he would start to see, quote, meth users call them shadow people, unquote. In addition, from the end of 2012, through that Wednesday, September 24, 2014, Rodney had used methamphetamine every day and night, typically smoking approximately one to one and a half grams of meth each day, which he stated was an 80 to $100 a day habit. When he purchased methamphetamine, he typically bought between a gram and three and a half grams, known colloquially as an eight ball, at a time. Rodney sustained his drug habit largely by stealing from neighbors and local businesses and then selling the stolen goods. When Sergeant Brooks and Rodney finished their embrace at the end of the driveway, Rodney Garrett spoke three words, quote, I messed up, unquote. Believing that Rodney was referring to his suspected theft of the green truck owned by Mr. Mendoza, Sergeant Brooks told Rodney Garrett that they would, quote, go to the office and talk about it and get everything sorted out. But there was something else on Rodney's mind involving a different theft at a different location. In Rodney's words, quote, there's another vehicle you need to know about, 
unquote. At that point, Rodney led Sergeant Brooks back into the woods to where an SUV was parked. It was a Lincoln Aviator. Rodney proceeded to explain how he came into possession of the aviator. He had been walking along Highway 319 around midnight on the evening of Monday, September 22, 2014. While walking down the highway, he stopped two or three times to smoke methamphetamine. As he was continuing along, he saw a driveway with its gate open and decided to check things out. He claimed he had no idea where the driveway led or whose property it was. Rodney walked what turned out to be over a half mile along the driveway through the woods until he came upon the SUV parked on the grass near the house. He tried the door of the Lincoln Aviator and it was unlocked. As luck would have it, the keys were inside. Rodney then walked over to another vehicle, a white truck, located near a detached garage on the same property. When he opened the door to this vehicle, he claimed to have found a neoprene bag, which he said he believed contained money, along with some digital scales, which he took. Rodney also looked around in the detached garage and found a gun safe from which he claimed to have taken just a shotgun and a rifle, despite the owner having reported seven firearms and thousands of rounds of ammunition being stolen from his property. Rodney explained that after grabbing the items, he then entered the aviator with the pilfered neoprene bag, scales, and firearms, started the SUV, and drove away from the property. At some point, Rodney said he stopped at a gas station to fuel the aviator, and that's when he decided to check out the contents of the neoprene bag. Inside the bag, Rodney claimed to have then discovered approximately 20 grams of methamphetamine. He later parked the aviator in the woods near his parents' residence. According to Rodney Garrett's explanation, the quantity of the drug scared him. He considered selling the rest of it and getting out of town, but the only person he could think of who might buy it was his own drug source, and he couldn't trust that person to keep quiet. He saw no easy way out. He said he concluded that only a well-connected dealer would have so much meth, so he thought it best to turn himself in. Now, whether Rodney really turned himself in or was forced to by his family and the circumstances is subject to debate. There is also reason to doubt that the quantity of meth that Rodney claimed to have found 
would have scared him so much. One of the sergeants investigating the matter would later estimate the street value of 20 grams at between three to $4,000, which, in the sergeant's words, ain't that big of a deal with a regular dope dealer. In fact, the sergeant added that Rodney's own buddy and supplier, Chris Willis, could be making that every day. After hearing Rodney Garrett's story, Sergeant Brooks called in the aviator's VIN, which came back stolen. Sergeant Brooks then called another Lawrence County officer, who in turn called Sergeant Christopher Brewer, the supervisor of the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office Narcotics Unit, at approximately 5.30 p.m. with a request that Brewer travel to Sergeant Brooks's location at the Garrett home. Just a short while later, Sergeant Brewer, along with Corporal Timothy Burris, arrived at the Garrett's residence, and the officers searched the aviator's interior. They located the scales and two firearms, but not a neoprene bag. Instead, the officers discovered a locked metal case, approximately one foot square inside, which Rodney Garrett claimed was his own, and into which he said he'd placed the contents of the neoprene bag. Because the metal box was locked, and Rodney said he had no key, however, they were unable to examine its contents right then at that time. While at the Garrett's residence, Sergeant Brooks read Rodney Garrett his Miranda rights and asked him to identify any property inside his shop that was stolen. In response, Rodney Garrett looked around and said, quote, no, y'all got everything, unquote. Rodney Garrett was then known to be a suspect in several other outstanding burglaries and or thefts that occurred in the Lawrence County area. Sergeant Brooks focused in on a particular four-wheel all-terrain vehicle that Rodney had previously been seen operating. Rodney denied stealing the ATV. He claimed, falsely as it would turn out, that he had purchased the ATV from a man named Jimmy White a year or two before. However, he admitted that he knew where the vehicle was now located. Accordingly, Rodney Garrett and the officers drove out to find the ATV. What follows is an extract of deposition testimony of Sergeant Ryan Brooks, with the sergeant answering questions from a lawyer under oath. These are their actual words, but the voices are actors. At some point as you're still there at the Garrett property, am I correct in understanding that you asked Rodney Garrett about a four-wheeler that he had been riding? Yes, sir. And tell me, when you asked him that, did you have some suspicion that maybe it wasn't his? I don't know. He was in a stolen truck, so I didn't know. No. 
Understanding that you didn't know one way or another, did you wonder possibly if it was stolen? Yes, sir. And what did you learn from Rodney Garrett about the four-wheeler? I can't remember what he told me about it. He told me where it was, where it was at, and we went down to the location. I'm looking at some, I think it's this long paragraph that starts with, we left the location. Do you see that? Yes, sir. That's where he told me it was located to where it was at the time. And you're, at this point, you're accompanied by Sergeant Brewer and Corporal Burris, correct? Yes, sir. They're in the vehicle behind me. And I take it Rodney Garrett is in the vehicle that you're operating? Yes, sir. And you drove out to Greg Cooey. Is it Cooey? Yes, sir. Greg Cooey. And what happened there? We got him out of the car, Rod, and he walked us down in the woods and showed us where the four-wheeler was at. The four-wheeler wouldn't crank, and it was really thick in there with the briars. I mean, it wasn't any way. It was down in, like, a creek bottom, and there wasn't any way we could push it out. Sergeant Brewer called Captain Wright and told him about it, and Captain Wright said to leave it there and that he would deal with it. What position did Captain Wright have? Why would... What's your understanding of why that contact or that... He's the captain over investigations. The officers subsequently took Rodney Garrett to the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office. En route, Sergeant Brooks received a call from another Lawrence County officer, Sergeant Lance Paget, who stated that the stolen aviator was his assignment and that he needed to question Rodney Garrett in regards thereto. Sergeant Paget then called Sergeant Robbie Tony, who you may remember is the officer who had initially investigated the thefts from the Hooks residence, to inform him that David Hooks' aviator had been located. When Rodney Garrett arrived at the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office, Sergeant Paget along with Sergeant Brooks, Sergeant Brewer, and Corporal Burris, took him to an office for questioning, which began at approximately 7.45 p.m. During this questioning, Rodney Garrett admitted to the officers that, one, he was temporarily living in a tent in the woods with his friend Chris Willis, two, Mr. Willis's house was littered with enough baggies that it would have, quote, blowed your mind, unquote, and that the floor of the house was essentially carpeted with baggies full of meth. Three, that he regularly bought methamphetamine from Mr. Willis and or an associate of Mr. Willis, a Jeremy Lumley, with Mr. Willis acting as an intermediary or broker. Four, Rodney was presently strung out on methamphetamine. Five, he had smoked approximately a half gram of the methamphetamine purportedly taken from the Hooks property up to and throughout the night before his arrest. And six, he had contemplated selling the methamphetamine to a few individuals, including Mr. Willis. Despite the officer's repeated attempts to get him to admit otherwise, Rodney Garrett maintained that he had never had any prior interaction with David Hooks or his property. 
The officers also questioned Rodney about other thefts in which he was a suspect, for all of which he either denied having any knowledge or gave exculpatory explanations. Some examples of the different types of claims Rodney made included he found it broken down in the woods, bought it from a co-worker, quote, probably a year and a half or two years ago, unquote, or, quote, was working on it for a man, unquote, or that, quote, there was a different model than what we had, or, quote, no, that's good, that's mine, or, quote, bought it at a yard sale, or, quote, bought them, never used them, etc., etc. The officers also inquired whether Rodney had swapped any of the items he had taken from the Hooks property for drugs or cash, but he denied that. When the questioning ended at approximately 8.10 p.m., Sergeant Paget wrote a citation against Rodney for his burglary of the Hooks property and directed Sergeant Brooks to have him booked in the Lawrence County Jail. Sergeant Paget then called Sergeant Tony and informed him that Rodney Garrett had turned himself in and was claiming that he did not steal any other property from the Hooks property other than the aviator, two guns, scales, money, and methamphetamine. As remarkable as this may seem, by the time the questioning of Rodney Garrett ended, Sergeant Brewer concluded there was now some different and very pressing business. He was not so much focused on further investigation of Garrett's possession of meth or his multiple thefts from David Hooks and others of guns, ammunition, and vehicles, among other items. Instead, Sergeant Brewer felt that the priority course of action was to obtain a warrant to search the home of David Hooks the victim of the burglary from the previous night, in hopes of seizing methamphetamine and paraphernalia and arresting David Hooks himself. At about 8.30 p.m., 20 minutes after the questioning of Garrett had ended, Brewer, along with Sergeant Paget and Corporal Burris, called Lawrence County's Deputy Chief Assistant District Attorney, Brandon Faircloth, and spoke with him for a few minutes about seeking a search warrant for the Hooks property. Mr. Faircloth described the conversation as very informal. He was not giving a legal opinion as to whether there was a proper basis for a warrant and was not asked to do so. He simply gave some standard, very basic advice that the officers should provide the magistrate 
with each and every relevant fact they had in their possession to ensure they did not obtain a search warrant under false pretenses. In D.A. Faircloth's recounting later, he said, quote, Basically, we always advise officers that they want to make sure that they tell the full truth and that they give a full picture to the magistrate. You don't want a situation where they think that something is not important. Not that they're trying anything, but that they're just, they're focusing on things that they view as more important. And so they leave something out that the magistrate may think is the most important part either way. When they hung up with the DA's office, Sergeant Brewer was in a real hurry. He wanted to get before a magistrate, have a warrant issued, and then search the hook's property that very night. Without further investigation, Sergeant Brewer prepared an affidavit and application for a search warrant for the Hook's residence and the surrounding property to take to the magistrate. Now, I think it's worth pausing here to consider what this means in context. David Hooks had been robbed of a car, guns, and ammunition. On the word of the serial thief that robbed him, a thief known to be a habitual liar, a meth addict, and strung out on meth at the time he entered the Hooks property, and sleepless and still high on meth at the time of his questioning and arrest, law enforcement was seeking to search the home of David Hooks and arrest him if they could find illegal drugs. The same David Hooks, who had an unblemished record in the community and who, by virtue of his extensive work with the military, had been vetted and undergone background checks by state and federal authorities, including the Department of Homeland Security, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. He maintained his security clearance by virtue of the background checks. Now, there was one other element used to justify a search warrant. As we will see in a future episode, this involved an unsubstantiated tip from a man five years earlier that he was bringing methamphetamine back from Atlanta and distributing it to well-to-do members of the Dublin community, including judges, attorneys, and businessmen, one of whom was allegedly David Hooks. Nothing apparently ever came of that, and not even a case file had been opened. But the five-year-old uncorroborated tip made it into the search warrant application. In order to obtain a search warrant, police have to demonstrate what is known as probable cause. This is an express requirement of the U.S. Constitution embodied in the Fourth Amendment, which provides that, quote, no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, unquote. 
a warrant affidavit must include a probability or substantial chance of criminal activity. In considering probable cause, a court does not isolate events, but considers the totality of the circumstances to decide whether there was, quote, fair probability that contraband or evidence of crime will be found in a particular place, unquote. At the same time, affiants cannot lie or omit critical information. The Supreme Court has held that a warrant fails to provide probable cause if it includes a, quote, deliberate falsity or reckless disregard for the truth. This also extends to, quote, information omitted from warrant affidavits, unquote. So an officer cannot ignore easily discoverable facts and choose to disregard information. Brewer's warrant affidavit stated, among other things, quote, your affiant is familiar with the residence and the occupant of the residence, David Hooks, from a prior narcotics investigation involving Jeff Frazier. During this investigation, Frazier had been interviewed by law enforcement and stated that he had been the source of supply for multiple ounces of methamphetamine to Hooks, which Hooks was allegedly redistributing. Unquote. The affidavit also stated that Rodney Garrett had, quote, provided other information which led to the recovery of stolen property which law enforcement was unaware of prior to this confession, unquote. Most of the affidavit was boilerplate, attesting to Sergeant Brewer's expertise. Quote, Affiant has conducted, assisted, or been the lead agent on more than 1,000 drug investigations for violation of the Georgia Controlled Substances Act, including cocaine, marijuana, methamphetamine, and prescription drugs, along with other substances. Affiant also made many other narcotic-related arrests during its career prior to joining the drug unit, unquote. And it also said, quote, Affiant has received advanced training in controlled substance investigations, both on a state and federal level. Topics have included confidential informants, drug identification, prescription drug investigations, indoor marijuana grow operations, street-level drug interdiction, field sobriety testing for persons under the influence of narcotics, search and seizure for narcotics investigations, interviews and inter interrogations, drug trends, physical and electronic surveillance, gang activity with drugs, field testing drugs, crack cocaine manufacturing, various types of methamphetamine manufacturing processes, symptoms of drug abuse, clandestine labs, money laundering, and reverse sting drug operations.
Brewer attested in the affidavit that he had reason to believe that on the person or property of David Hooks, there were, quote, controlled substances, in particular methamphetamine, along with paraphernalia necessary for manufacturing, packaging, cutting, weighing, and or distributing controlled substances. Currency of the United States obtained, connected with, and or possessed to facilitate the financing of illicit drug trafficking. Unquote. A non-lawyer magistrate judge signed the search warrant at 9.56 p.m., around only two hours after police interviewed Garrett. The warrant allowed police to search the Hooks residence and property. Sheriff William Harold did not review the application, but he agreed that Brewer had probable cause based on what Brewer had told him. Officers then decided to bring in the sheriff's response team, known as the SRT, to execute the warrant that evening. Moving quickly was important, Sergeant Brewer claimed, because police had concerns that Hooks could destroy evidence. The SRT was assembled and briefed, and the sheriff himself, William Bill Harrell, was present for this briefing. During the meeting, officers discussed the fact that Hooks had just been robbed and had weapons on the property, so they were told to be on high alert. There was also discussion that those executing the warrant should not be in a hurry and that they should take their time with the knock and announce to allow sufficient time for any occupants to come to the door. The SRT and other members of the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office, including Sergeant Brewer, Sheriff Harrell, and Corporal Steve Verton, drove out to Highway 319 North on a fateful journey toward the Hooks property to execute the search warrant at approximately 11 p.m. on that same Wednesday night, just about an hour after the magistrate had signed the search warrant. As you may recall from episode one, this was also around the time that Teresa Hooks saw men approaching the residence, followed by the sound of the back door being busted down. Thank you for listening to Night Raids. In our next episode, we'll discover who broke down the back door and follow the fast and fateful sequence of events that ensued. Stay tuned for Episode 3 of Night Raids. And it was over. Night Raids is a production of True Suspense Podcasts. Written and narrated by me, Arthur Perlstein. Music, sound engineering, and post-production by Guy Bainbridge and Walls End Studios. Be sure to visit truesuspense.com 
for more information about this podcast and other True Suspense productions. Oh, my God.